Hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Riverside Wednesday night. And we are wrapping up, Lord willing, the, the Old Testament here tonight. So Zechariah, turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. And uh, we're just a couple books away from going right through the Old Testament here as we are looking at the Bible from 30,000 feet and soaring through Scripture. So uh, it's been great. And so Zechariah continues on now. Um, looking at the situation taking place as the people of Israel have come back from captivity in Babylon. Um, Zechariah was writing along with Haggai. Uh, another prophet that we looked at last week here is Haggai was writing to the, the need, the situation going on back in Judah and Jerusalem as people had returned here. And Haggai and Zechariah are writing to really encourage the people. To really give a bit of a shot, a, a boost to the people that have returned back from Babylon with a little bit of low morale as they're coming back to the city. They're seeing the temple destroyed, their city Jerusalem, their beloved city kind of sacked. And, and it's been tough. It's been hard. Not only has it been a long journey coming back from Babylon, but they're coming back to nothing where they got to rebuild, restore. It's taken a toll on them. But yet God's been faithful to raise up these prophets that we've been looking at here now. And these last three prophets in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi, are writing during this, this time period, this context now, the people of low morale coming back to do the work that God had, had called them to do. And so this is really the context that we're looking at. Zechariah takes a long look at the... The future, or sorry, the immediate situation. He, he deals with the immediate situation taking place there in Jerusalem with the rebuilding of the temple. But then in the book of Zechariah, we're also kind of taking a, a future look. Taking a long look at the future situation here going on with what is to come and with what God has planned and in store for his people. Primarily bringing all the nations together, Jew and Gentile, to worship their king, Jesus Christ. And so Zechariah is looking ahead to what God has planned and what is coming. So here's a bit of an outline that we see here in the uh, book of Zechariah. The immediate, which is rebuilding the temple, those first six chapters detailing that. We'll look at the temple visions and then temple requirements. And then we see the future, the restoration and the reign of Jesus in chapters 9 to 14. We'll look at the first coming of Jesus where he was rejected and then we'll look at the second coming of Jesus where the Messiah will be accepted. And so that's what we're looking at here in Zechariah. Here's um, a few fun facts about Zechariah here. And that is primarily that he's the longest of the minor prophets. And so most of the books of the minor prophets so far have been rather brief. That's why they've been called minor. But here's Zechariah, 14 chapters. A little bit longer than the rest of the prophet. Uh, Minor prophets. Zechariah contains more messianic prophecies than any other old or any other book in the Old Testament except for Isaiah. Zechariah is quoted or referred to at least 40 times in the New Testament. One estimate has about 54 passages from Zechariah kind of alluded to or echoed um, in the New Testament. Zechariah makes more references and allusions to the coming Messiah than all of the other minor prophets combined. The book of Zechariah has been called the Apocalypse of the Old Testament. George L. Robinson said this. So the book of Zechariah is the most messianic, the most truly apocalyptic and eschatological of all the writings of the Old Testament. And then um, H.C. Leupold said this. The book of the prophet Zechariah is not much studied nor adequately understood in our day. Yet the book as a whole can be studied with great profit and to the strengthening of one's faith. The New Testament makes repeated use of the book. So should we, he said. So it's a great book, a fascinating book. And we're just going to kind of skim through it, give that overview. If you haven't gone through the book of Zechariah, check out our, our website. And, and we did this study maybe um, six or seven years ago. And, and so we took some time really going through it. A lot of fascinating things in the book of Zechariah. So we'll bring out some of the highlights here tonight as we go through it. Look at that first verse here. 
in chapter 1. It says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, and saying, and then we'll stop right there. But so Zechariah gives us a very distinct time frame now as to when he's writing this book here. He dates it all out for us. Um, Zechariah's ministry began two months after Haggai's did the second year of Darius. As it's recorded, verse 1 is about 520 BC. The eighth month would have corresponded to about October or November on our calendar. So he gives some very distinct dating here. This And it's interesting that Zechariah is dating his prophecy according to the reign of a Gentile king, right? Most of the time you're looking at Jewish kings, but here now he says, talks about Darius. Again, it's a reminder for all that, that at that point here now, they're living in the times of the Gentiles that, that Jesus talks about. That goes all the way through history until Jesus comes back again, right? And so there's times of the Gentiles in full swing here. There's no Jewish king on the throne at this time. But the book of Zechariah is meant to look forward to the day when all that God has promised is indeed going to be fulfilled, where the king is coming. And that's kind of the theme of, of Zechariah. And then we see a few names here, right? Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Well, it's fitting because the name Yah, uh, Zechariah means Yahweh remembered. And then Berechiah means Yahweh will bless. Edo means at the appointed time. So here in this first verse, we have for us this kind of outline for the whole book. God is seeing and remembering his people. And there will be a blessing that will be poured out in God's timing at the appointed time. And so kind of a correlation of these names here really paints for us what we're going to be seeing through the book of Zechariah. Look at verse 2 here. The Lord has been very angry with our fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? Are, and the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So Zechariah here, in these first six verses, really enumerates in his introduction um, these five great principles that are important for us here. Look at what we see there in these first five verses. We see the condition of all God's blessings. It's there in verse three. Return to me and I will return to you. How important that is, right? So often it's not about, Lord, where have you gone? It's about, where have I gone? Where have I drifted? And the, and the Lord is simply calling out to us, return to me. And, and you will find me. You'll, you'll see me. I will come and meet with you. But return to me. And so that heart of repentance there and coming back to the Lord. That's where God's blessings begin to flow is when we return to him. Secondly, we see the evil and peril of disobedience in verse 4. Do not be like your fathers. Who again, they, they tuned out the prophets. They tuned out the word of the Lord, didn't they? Thirdly, we see the unchangeable character of God's word. In the beginning of verse 6, my words and my statutes, did they not overtake your fathers? In other words, they've, they've not changed. They've not gone anywhere. They're still continuing on, even, even well beyond your fathers. Fourthly, we see God's governmental dealings with his people in accordance with their deeds there in the second part of verse 6. It's according to our ways and according to our deeds, it says there. And then we see God's immutable purposes at the end of verse 6. As the Lord of hosts determined, so he has dealt with us. Now notice how many times, just even in those first two verses, we see that phrase, the Lord of hosts. All right? It's there four times in verses 3 and 4. It's used 52 times in the book of Zechariah, the Lord of hosts. Hosts. And it really means that the Lord is the Lord of angel armies. He's the Lord of a multitude, the Lord of hosts, right? And so we see that the Lord is coming and he's, he's working. And, and as well, there's a number of hosts at the Lord's disposal carrying out his, his will and his work. It's a phrase frequent in Haggai and Zechariah implying God's boundless resources and universal power so as to inspire the Jews with confidence even as they're coming back to carry out the work that they need to do. Now, in the bulk of these next 
few chapters. We're going to take a look, and this is where the beginning part of Zechariah really centers on. We're going to take a look at these eight night visions that Zechariah receives here. In a single night. Remember, Haggai is, they're rallying the people to rebuild the temple. Haggai is a man of action, whereas Zechariah is a man of vision. He's receiving from the Lord here. Haggai is out there sawing, he's working, and yet Zechariah is there seeing and waiting on the Lord here, hearing from the Lord. And so Zechariah begins to unfold these eight night visions and we begin to see some of the practical implications for us here. There was a, uh, a woman that was woken up one night and she told her husband, I just had this dream that you gave me this incredible pearl necklace. I wonder what that means, she says. And the husband says, well, I think by tomorrow you're going to find out. And so she was so excited. The next day, the husband comes back home from work and he gives her this present all wrapped up. And the wife is so excited. She opens it up and it's a book that says how to interpret your dreams. Well, that wasn't exactly what she was looking for. But we're going to be interpreting some dreams here that Zechariah is going to receive. And so the first vision that he gets is there in verse 7. Look at on the 24th day, chapter 1, verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month uh, Shebat in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind, behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Now, this isn't any correlation to the, the four horses of the apocalypse that we read in, in Revelation, but nevertheless... Zechariah receives in this first vision now, this red horse rider that's among the myrtle trees. Now, the myrtle trees are an evergreen and they, they grow low. They grow strong. They're not like the cedars of Lebanon that grow very high, but they, they have these deep roots. They're difficult to uproot, these myrtle trees. So the message was that Israel would continue on. And, and God is going to deal with all the other nations for how they treated Israel, but he's not going to forget about his people. Myrtle trees is evergreen tree. It continues on to have life. And, and that's the picture for Israel. You're going to continue on to have life. God's going to deal with the nations. You're not going to be exempt here. God's going to restore you and, and, and do a work in you. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. Continuing on in the same vision. God says, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry. And they helped, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So the Lord's showing that, man, I'm, I'm not happy with these nations that are at ease, thinking that, oh, we got it all together. We got it made. God says, they were ones that... Helped me carrying out my judgment, but they went a little bit too far. And now they're saying, well, I'm going to deal with them. I haven't forgotten about you, Israel. This is what the Lord has said. I'm going to return to Jerusalem with mercy. Well, the second vision is there in verse 18. And this is about the four horns and four craftsmen. In verses 18 and 19, the horns are the, nation, are the nations that scattered Israel. This is perhaps a, a reference to the nations from Nebuchadnezzar's image in Daniel 2 that we saw Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Whereas verse 20 to 21 speaks of the craftsmen who were sent now to defeat Israel's oppressors, to bring these nations down. Vision 3 is in chapter 2, verse 1. And that vision is about the man with a measuring line. And that vision shows how God will, will rebuild Jerusalem. The city would spread in prosperity, population, and protection. Vision 4, Zechariah 3. That's the vision of the present priesthood of Joshua. So here's Joshua now, back in the land. Again, he's called to be a priest, but yet we see Joshua clothed now in kind of dirty garments, rags that are representing sin. There's Satan, they're standing beside him in in verse 1, that's opposing him, trying to drag him down. Whereas the Lord comes and rebukes Satan there. And then Joshua is clothed in new garments. Look at verse 4. 
Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. That's awesome. So this vision serves really to to reveal this beautiful picture of salvation that we have in Jesus. Look at verse 8. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Now, Joshua and the priests were to be a sign, a sign of wonder, because they would be, be a picture of full cleansing that would come for the whole nation of Israel, you see. And that would come when the true priest, Jesus Christ, will come back in his second coming. God speaking about his servant, the branch, that's referring to Jesus, that'll come. So Zechariah's given that glimpse of this one that's going to come. And even though the, when you think about the branch, that, that trunk, right, that that stump of David's dynasty appeared to have been felled. Out of the stump now of that tree emerged a sprout, a branch. This messianic branch that will come. This term branch is a messianic title that's used several times throughout the Old Testament. Jesus came as God's servant to carry out his will. And that branch would provide life and fruitfulness to all that will accept him. So that's the fourth vision. Now the fifth vision is dealing with, I, I didn't get that in time, did I? Okay, the fifth vision, here it is, the lampstand and two olive trees. So vision four was about Joshua the priest. Vision five here is about Zerubbabel. Now this vision explains how the work of God is accomplished. When the people came back to Jerusalem, the task that was before them It just looked impossible. We've got to rebuild the temple out of this pile of rubble. We got to we got to do that work. We the city's torn. Like they're looking at at this mess, and they're thinking, "How are we ever going to deal with this? How are we ever going to bring this temple back to to being?" But this word now comes to Zerubbabel that this wouldn't be accomplished by his own strength, but through the Spirit. See the lampstand that's uh, that. Zechariah is given as a vision here, we'll have these two olive trees where there'll be this continual flow of oil being poured into it. Look at verse 6, chapter 4, famous verse, wonderful verse. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That was a verse that Chuck Smith used to quote, loved to quote a lot. And man, it's been so encouraging to me to realize and know that whatever you might see before you, whatever challenge or difficulty or task that the Lord might call you to, where you think, you want me to do that? Well, right here is a verse that says, listen, it's not going to be by your might or your power. It's not up to you. It's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then Zechariah 4 also has probably one of my most favorite verses here in verse 10. For who is despised the day is small things. Wonderful verse. Underline that. That's a good one to have there. Chapter 4 verse 10. And that's the thing is that they're looking at this going, is this ever going to come to anything? The Lord says, listen, don't despise. Simple beginnings here. Watch and see what I'm going to do in this. Now, Zechariah asks about these two olive trees there in verse 11. Then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and out of stuff? He's not sure. And like a lot of prophecy, this passage has a, a near and a far fulfillment because it's been seen as representing the two main leaders for Israel that uh, accompany the group back to Jerusalem from captivity. Joshua the high priest. Zerubbabel the civil leader here now. So it's pictured as Joshua and Zerubbabel being these two people here now. That the Lord was going to do this work in and, and through. But I believe it also has a future fulfillment that we see in Revelation. With the two witnesses that are going to come. And testify and witness for the Lord during the tribulation period. Revelation 11 verse 3 and 4. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So again, that same kind of parallel vision that we see here in Zechariah, the two lampstands and the two olive trees. So a near and a far fulfillment of that. But notice that I I love that um, it, it says there 
These are the two in verse 14. These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. That word anointed really means sons of fresh oil. Sons of fresh oil. See, that's what the Lord desires to do. Not just for these two, but for all of his servants. That's you and I. To pour in daily fresh oil. What's the oil? A picture of the Holy Spirit. He desires to pour into you daily a fresh supply of that anointing power that enables us and equips us to live these lives for him and to live as a witness. That's what the lampstand's picture, isn't that? That is supposed to be that light. Where to be that light of the world. And you think, man, that's, that can be a daunting task, especially when you look at what we talked about Sunday in, in John 15, where the world is going to hate you. But yet we recognize it's not by might nor by power. It's not by my ability. It's not by my wisdom. It's through the Holy Spirit empowering me and how I need a fresh filling of that daily. May we be anointed in the term of being people of fresh oil, daily coming to the Lord saying, Yeah, just give me a fresh supply of what I need today to live for you and to carry out your work today. You know, that fresh anointing of the Lord here. Relying on his spirit in all things. Well, coming back to those visions now. The sixth vision is in Zechariah chapter 5, which is this flying scroll. Zechariah sees now just this enormous scroll stretched out. And the scroll has five words written on both sides. The scroll reads on side one, every thief shall be expelled. And then on the second side, it says every perjurer shall be expelled. You see, these are two violations of the the moral law of God given in Exodus chapter 20. The basic message was that God is going to judge sin. God's going to deal with this sin. He's got to take it away, you see. And then in vision 7, we'll see kind of a correlation here. Vision 7 is the woman in the basket. All right? The first basket case we have in the Bible. It's a woman. Just so, no, I'm kidding. This kind of basket that we see here in in chapter 5 is is a basket normally used to carry grain. It was used for measurement. This basket is now carrying a woman who is a picture of wickedness and sin. The sin of Israel has been measured, but yet now it's being removed. It's returning to Shinar, it says there. Um, Return to Shinar, which is Babylon, verse 11. And, and so we're speaking about this basket, the sin going back to Babylon. In other words, it's as though the Lord is saying, I'm going to remove this sin from you. I'm going to take it back. I don't want anything coming with you that you might have picked up there in Babylon. I'm going to send that back, take it there, and not see it happening here. And so it's this removal from, uh, from Israel, the sin that's going to prepare the way for Christ's second coming and for his millennial reign to be established ultimately. I'm so glad that Jesus has put away our sin, just as he did with this, this vision, this picture, this wicked woman in a basket being taken away to Babylon. He too has removed and taken away our sin. He's done that. Through the cross. Have we received that today? We either receive his putting away of sin. Or he'll have to put us away. Like we've seen here. In this chapter. What a freeing thing it is to know that the Lord forgives. And the Lord wants to remove our sin. I pray that we're receiving that daily. Vision 8. Here the last one now. is found in Zechariah 6. And it's the vision of the four chariots. The four chariots came from between two mountains of bronze. Again, bronze picturing judgment in the Bible, right? Now, again, these chariots are different from the four horsemen of of Revelation. These chariot horses are spiritual beings. They go out in all directions to protect Israel. In in chapter 7 and 8 now, we have a little bit of a division in the book. A couple years after the night visions, a delegation from Bethel came and they're, they're coming to inquire about fasting. They've been celebrating a fast that's been um, every year in, in kind of uh, memorial of the fall of Jerusalem. And so they've been commemorating that through a fast on the anniversary of Jerusalem's fall. And, and now they're wondering if things are getting rebuilt, things are getting reestablished. Is it necessary to keep on with this fast? 
So Zechariah now responds in chapter 7 and 8 to this delegation coming with this inquiry. He responds with four messages. All right. Now the first message is in seven, chapter 7, verse 1 is 7. And God is ultimately asking them, well, who are you doing this for? You see, they've been fasting, but God says, has this been for me? Has this, has this really been for me there in verse 5? Look at that with me. Verse 5 of chapter 7. Say to all the people who land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? So in other words, he's saying, has this really been something that I've asked of you? Has this really been something that you've done out of, out of worship of me? Is this not just something that's been an outward form of ritual rather than about an inward response to God? So God kind of questions them on that. And then the second message he gives is in chapter 7, verse 8 to 14, which is about focusing on obedience, not ritual. God explains here why the people had to go through this time of, of mourning and judgment. Why they were taken away to Babylon? Because they've neglected God's word. They've turned from walking in, in just simple obedience of God. They haven't walked in justice and mercy and compassion as they're called out in verse 9. They stopped listening to the Lord. But then the third message comes, chapter 8. And God here now begins to remind them that he's gracious and he will yet bless Israel. It's a promise of future blessing to them. And then the fourth message is about going from fasting to feasting because Israel's fasts are going to be turned into feasts as people from all over the world will come and worship God again, looking ahead to the future kingdom, to when all nations are going to be gathered together and people are going to be celebrating. Look at verse 23 of chapter 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So they've heard the reports, they've heard the stories, but now they're going to be able to go and see that God is truly with them there in the kingdom and they're going to take part in the worship of the Lord. It'll be a time of feasting, not fasting. Now, as we move into the next and, and final section of Zechariah here, starting in chapter 9, we're going to deal with two burdens or, or oracles, again, messages of the Lord. The first one takes us through chapters 9 to 11 and it deals primarily with Jesus's first coming and the second burden in chapters 12 to 14 deals primarily with jesus's second coming now these are again words that will that would have brought great hope to those that are in israel revealing to them that god's on the move god's not abandoned them god's not forsaken them god's at work and he has great things in store for his people man i i pray that's the hope that we all have, regardless of what your situation might show or say, man, we know that God is at work and God's on the move and God has plans of blessing for you. Oh, it may not come tomorrow or the next week. It might be yet still in the future, but that's the hope that we should be living in that, that God's not done and God's at work. He's not abandoned us nor forsaken us. That's enough for us to go, man, I can continue on knowing that alone. And this is the word that's coming to the people here. Now, in order for the kingdom to come and for this reign of peace through the Messiah to be established, well, God's enemies need to be dealt with, don't they? So that's what we see happening first here in chapter 9, verse 1 to 8. God is taking care of all the enemies here. God is defending Israel. But then in chapter 9, verse 9, we come upon a very famous verse. Look at that with me. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus fulfilled this when he came riding to Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. You know that passage well. Came riding in on that colt. Jesus wasn't a, a king to hide in terror from. It says he came in gentleness. Came humbly. He came with justice. You see. But then just as is 
often the case with prophecy as we've already talked about here tonight. So many times the prophets would see something and there would be this near fulfillment, but then also a far fulfillment from chapter nine, or sorry, verse 9 to verse 10. We jump right from the first coming all the way to the second coming of Jesus. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, when he comes again, when Jesus, the Messiah, returns to this earth, as he's going to one day, he's going to bring in, usher in that kingdom of God. And it's going to be one of great peace. There'll be no more need for weapons or artillery. The battle bow shall be cut off, it says. We're not going to have to deal with war any longer. So God continues to speak about the blessings that he has in store for a nation that is unified under Christ and in Christ during the millennium. But before we dwell on the glorious preview of the kingdom to come, we once again are reminded of the rejection of the Messiah. In chapter 11, God gives Zechariah a heartbreaking task. He's to care for a flock which is not only doomed to die, but is resentful of his control. He calls his shepherd staff. He's given these two staffs. And he calls one uh, beauty. And he calls the other bonds. Or as it's also called. Um, it's also called grace or unity. So beauty and bonds too. But then he, he snaps beauty in half. It's to demonstrate God's frustration. With his people. With his covenant people. But then he also snaps bonds in half, which is significant of the separation between Israel and Judah. And then Zechariah is paid 30 pieces of silver for his pains, which he he throws down the temple. Now, there's a medley of gospel themes here that we see. One day Jesus is going to come as the good shepherd, because that's what we're seeing here in chapter 11. These shepherds that have not been good, they've been self-serving. Zechariah to kind of picture that and the harm that's come, you see. But Jesus is going to come as that good shepherd. He's going to challenge all phony, careless, and oppressive leaders. Now, tragically, just as we see here in, in Zechariah, Jesus is going to be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. The same amount that Zechariah received there in chapter 11, verse 13. 30 pieces of silver. That's what Judas was paid to betray Jesus. So we see again this pointing ahead, this fulfillment of what Jesus would do and accomplish and how these things are pointing to him. Now, verses 16 to 17 of chapter 17 has the Antichrist in view. Notice this, for indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm, and against his right eye his arm shall completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Now in Revelation we see how this one who is wounded kind of comes back and, and, and how people will flock to this Antichrist. And so here it seems that Christ picturing maybe an injury he endures or something he's blinded in, in, in his right eye. Perhaps correlation to what we see in Revelation where this Antichrist is, is, is wounded and is, is somewhat restored and is this, this great show, a power that causes a lot of people to again flock to him. So chapters 9 to 11 are dealing primarily with the first coming, but then chapters 12 to 14 dealing again primarily with Jesus' second coming. And before the coming of the Lord, many nations are going to be coming against Israel, right? We know that's known as the Battle of Armageddon, right? These nations are going to be led by the Antichrist that was just pointed out to us at the end of chapter 11. Many nations are going to be rallying around and, and behind the Antichrist, coming against God's people Israel. And seeking to come against God himself. But no matter how strong and mighty these nations may be. Look at what God says he's going to do. Chapter 12. Let's go to verse 8. 
It says there in verse 8, In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So this is going to be a great day, right? I mean, Israel's going to be sitting there going, oh my goodness, we're doomed, we're trapped, we're, we're in trouble. But that's when the Lord's going to return. And the very weak and feeble ones, they're going to be made like David that's bringing down giants in his day. So good. God's going to come and fight on their behalf. But not only is the Lord going to come and bring an end to the enemies of Israel, bring victory to Israel, but it's also going to be a time when he's going to pour out his spirit on his people where it'll be through these accounts that they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah, the very one that they had formerly rejected. And they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. Again, another well-known verse. And I will pour on the house of David... And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So there's coming a a day when the Lord Jesus will once again call out to Israel and draw them by his grace. But it'll be this time that they will look and recognize They will see his wounds, his piercings. They will recognize this is the one that that we crucified. He was our Messiah. We passed him by. We overlooked him. We dismissed him. We rejected him. But now they will see that he's the one that they pierced. He is the true Messiah. And there will be again a great grieving and, and supplication in the house of Israel. There will be a great repentance that will take place. In that day when they will see Jesus. That's why Paul would say, you know, that all Israel will be saved in that day. Because there will be a crying out nationally of the people when they see Jesus returning. Coming back. Now, it's a very interesting verse because in the original Hebrew, there's an untranslated word after they will look on me. All right? So, when it says, I'll pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me. But now there's this, in the Hebrew, there's this Aleph and the Ta. These two letters, the first and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In other words, that verse can be read, they will look on me, the beginning and the end, or in the Greek, the Alpha and the Omega, whom they pierced. That's how it reads in the original Hebrew. Again, a great sort of like preview of looking ahead to Jesus. Jesus in Revelation, what did he identify himself as? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so here's Jesus now coming with this, again, display that he is their Messiah. Now, Jews have had a hard time with this passage because not only does it predict how their Messiah would die, long before... That form of execution was really practiced. But they wonder how God could be pierced. How could God be pierced? Well, it's explained in the first coming of Jesus, the one that they rejected, the very way it's been foretold throughout Scripture. Jesus, the Son of God, truly God, will come in human form. And he would be pierced, crucified. And he'll come again at a second coming where they will then recognize and see and repent So Zechariah lets the people know that when they walk in repentance, there's going to be a continual cleansing for their sin. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The Lord desires to pour out this cleansing for them, to purify them. And that will happen when they repent and turn to Jesus. Now, in the last chapter, we look once more at the final battle that's going down, but with emphasis on the physical return of the king. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. It says there, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Um, As he fights in the day of battle against... Sorry, I lost my place here. As he fights... 
against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in verse 4, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. What a, a great scene that is. Remember when Jesus ascended up to heaven? Where was he? He's on the Mount of Olives and the disciples are looking up. He's going and they're like, is he coming back? Like, how long is he going to be? Should we wait here? Like, how long is this going to take? Remember the, the two angels, two men, angels come to them and say, listen, just as this savior of yours has gone up, he'll return again the same way. And here now in Zechariah, we're told he's going to set foot right back down on the Mount of Olives, the same place he took off after his first coming. He's going to return at his second coming. And when he sets down the foot of Olives, there's going to be an incredible topographical change that's going to take place as this mountain is going to be split in two. Now remember, when Jesus came at his triumphal entry, he came riding down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, perhaps coming into the Eastern Gate. And there's been, you know, kind of ideas that the Messiah is going to come again to the Eastern Gate. That's why uh, I think it was Shulamin closed up the Eastern Gate. Did I get that right? I can't remember. Something like that. Who? Shulamin? Shulamin. Okay, Shulamin. And he closed up the Eastern Gate, right? Thinking, if this is where the Messiah, the, the, the Jewish Messiah is going to come through. So right now, the Eastern Gate is sealed up. And many people wonder, well, how is the Lord going to... Come back again the same way, you know. Well, look at what happens here. He's going to set foot down the Mount of Olives and just poof, split in two. Perhaps just busting open that gate. Psalms talks about, you know, be lifted up, O you gates. Perhaps, again, from underneath where this ground just breaks forth in the, the real gate. Because, again, everything's been built on top of former things. That real gate is going to be exposed and opened up for the Messiah to come through. I think it's pretty exciting, pretty cool. But it's also going to have an effect now because notice there we read in verse 8, and in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea in both summer and winter it shall occur. So it's going to have an incredible effect that living waters are going to flow right into the Dead Sea and into the Mediterranean Sea. Ezekiel 47 tells us that that there's going to be fishing going on there in the Dead Sea during the millennium. And it's not going to be the Dead Sea any longer. It's called the Dead Sea because nothing can live in it. It's so salty. But when Jesus comes, man, whether or not he just sets foot, it just busts open, springs underground, are just going to run, living water is just going to go poured in, and it's going to be teeming with life again. I think that is so cool. See, Jesus desires to come and bring life. And sometimes there's things that are being held back in our own lives. And Jesus wants to come and just sort of shake those things out of your life. He wants to be present. And when we allow the Lord to touch down in our hearts and in our lives, sometimes it's going to rattle a few things around. But that's for our good because it's what allows life to come. Living water to be poured in. Don't allow things in your life that will impede that work of the Lord. Let Him come and do His work. And then... In that day, as the chapter ends, just nations are going to come and they're going to worship King Jesus. They're going to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, it says in verse 16. People are going to be coming and celebrating. What a, what a day this is going to be. Man, I don't know about you, but I, I sure can't wait. Well, let's quickly go through the book of Malachi here and close out the Old Testament. In Malachi, we have the last words now of the Old Testament. After the book of Malachi, there would be 400 silent years of God. Think about that. People would have had a long time to mull over the questions and the pronouncements that are given by God in this book. Now, Malachi means my messenger. My messenger. Malachi was to be the last messenger for God in the Old Testament. And perhaps there's a bit of a wordplay there in chapter 3, verse 1, where Malachi mentions the messenger that is yet to come. Malachi's life would foreshadow the messenger that would come and break the silence, which would be John the Baptist. So Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah and Ezra. We know this because of the similarity of situation addressed in Nehemiah 13 and in, um, yeah, in Nehemiah 13. And we see it also in Malachi here. Now in 536 BC, 
Zerubbabel led this group of 50,000 people back from Babylon there to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Haggai and Zechariah, as we talked about, played a role in just encouraging and equipping the work to get done. But then 60 years later, Ezra, the scribe, arrived to encourage, again, this commitment to the Lord. 14 years later, Nehemiah arrived to begin rebuilding the city walls. Remember, just as there were three deportations to Babylon, there were three groups that returned in different times from Babylon. So these combined efforts of Nehemiah and Ezra and the prophets stirring the people to commit themselves to the Lord had an effect for a time, but Nehemiah records, well, let me just get into this. Yeah, the, Nehemiah records the commitments that were made during their ministry here. Ezra taught the people the word of God, and in response, they celebrated the Feast of Booths, separated themselves from godly from ungodly influences. They committed to obey the word of God, committed to do marriage right, committed to keep the Sabbath, committed to give the work of the Lord or to the work of the Lord. But then what we see is that these commitments didn't really sink in deep enough. Because now Malachi's time, which he's ministering towards the end of of Nehemiah's um, ministry, people are reverting back, sinking back to their old ways again. They turn back to ungodly behaviors they once left behind they reestablished unhealthy relationships they stopped giving to the work of the lord compromised on god's ideal for marriage they broke the sabbath so malachi is written during the these closing chapters in nehemiah and malachi addresses the sinful behaviors of the people of god here that we see happening and as he addresses their conduct they respond oftentimes by arguing wait a second what are you talking about when did we do this You'll see this often to the book of, of Malachi. So here's what we're going to be looking at in the outline. The assertion, chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. We'll see the objection, chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 3, verse 15. And then the reaction, Malachi three sixteen to 4, 6. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet, yet you say... In what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. So here's where things really began to go wrong for these returned captives. They were doubting the love of God. In what way have you loved us, God? Would we have had to have gone through all these things that we've gone through if you had truly loved us? Perhaps they're looking back on their history, their, their trials and tribulations and wondered how God could do that to them. Maybe you've wondered that yourself. Maybe you've seen different circumstances and questioned, God, where are you? Do you really love me? Why would you allow these things to happen? But again, the problem wasn't with God. The problem was with Israel. Israel has brought these things upon themselves. They were warned very clearly for generations. Follow and obey God's commands and you're going to live. You're going to be blessed. Forsake it, there's going to be consequences. But they failed to follow faithfully in simple worship of God and they paid the price for it. See, we can't ever doubt the love of God. No matter if you lose your job, your house, your health, that's not the work of an unloving, uncompassionate God. Rather, it's in those times that we have to reflect all the more on the never-ending love of God that is meant to sustain us and carry us through those times, to know that God is with us, that God will uphold us, that God will never leave us or forsake us. If you begin to take for granted the love of God or wonder if He really loves you, you will quickly find yourself slipping into those patterns that do not honor Him. Where you start to say, well, I'll just do my own thing. Then I'll just follow my way if, if we begin to doubt and question God's love. That's the state that the people in Malachi's time are in right now. And then they have the audacity to ask, in what way have you loved us? Right? Like, come on. Show it. I mean, so what God does is, and this is a verse that's troubled a lot of people when we hear that, God says in verse 3, Esau, I've hated. What God is saying here is that in comparison, I have lifted up you, the descendants of Jacob. I've honored you. I have, I have, you know, done a work through you. 
It's not so much that God hated Esau, but that he's chosen Jacob. And in comparison, it's as though that seemed like hatred in a sense. It's as though it's speaking more of just that God has rejected Esau because Esau has rejected the things of God. The term hated is not used in some wrathful, fury rising type of way. It rather reveals that God's love for Jacob was so great that his response to Esau appeared as hatred. Jesus kind of used the same sort of, uh, you know, metaphor language when, when he said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. The Lord's not saying hate your mother and father because that breaks the commandment of God. Saying, he's basically saying, your love for me must be so much greater and higher that your love for your family would almost seem like hatred in comparison to your love for me. Now, in the next few chapters, God's going to take them to task for how they've been living and treating him. So in chapter 1, verse 6 to 14, they're called out for their polluted offerings. They were offering blemished sacrifices. In chapter 2, verse 29, the priests are called out for corrupting their call. Not been living in a holy way like God had called them to. In chapter 2, verse 10 to 17, the people are called out for compromising God's covenant. They were marrying foreigners and divorcing their wives. Yet, with each of these objections by the Lord, the people would respond by saying, Wait a second, how have we done this? What are you talking about, Lord? And look at what God says in chapter 2, verse 17. He says there, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? So the Lord's just basically saying like, man, you're you're tiring me out. It's like when your kids, I had this child, I used to work at a daycare. And this one child, that every response, whatever you said, her response was, why? Why? That's all she said, just... You'd be like, you know, I need you to do this. Why? Just because, just, I'm just asking, please go and do, go over here. Go sit down over there. Why? That was all she would say, right? And it's like, I, I feel the Lord's heart here. You've wearied me with your words. That's kind of what he's dealing with. The people are going, well, how have we done this? Why, God? When? How? That's all they're saying. And now they're starting to kind of excuse their sin, thinking that they can even get away in their sin. They thought God's not really responding. Where's the God of justice and all these things? He's not dealing with sinfulness here. But you see, they needed to stop worrying about what they thought God wasn't doing and start being a little more concerned with what they're not doing. And that is walking in obedience to God because God was coming. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we know the the messenger that's being spoken of here is speaking of John the Baptist. The forerunner of the Messiah. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all quote this verse. And they apply it to John the Baptist. Now a messenger always preceded the king that was coming in a royal procession. Because he would get out there and prepare the way for the king. Removing any roadblocks, any difficult passages. And allow for a smooth ride in for the king. Now there were a lot of roadblocks that needed to be moved. In Israel. In the hearts of the people. Right? They need to be smoothed over Malachi's day. This happens when we give rain to the Lord to cleanse us and purify us. When we allow the Lord to say, would you remove those those stumbling blocks would you repair those potholes in my life because what i want you to have free reign in my life look at chapter 3 verse 2 but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he's like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver he will purify the sons of levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the lord an offering in righteousness So the Lord's going to come and purify them if they will allow that to happen. He'll allow that that fire to come and refine them. And in chapter 3, we also have the famous passage of bringing our tithes to the Lord. People of Judah were robbing God in these things. Look at verse 8. 
Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? Well, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes in the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now, and this says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. We may think of, you know, robbing God like, well, if there's an offering plate that passes by, we're going to dip in and grab some for ourselves. Or we're walking out, we sip our arm in the offering box there and help ourselves for some lunch money. That we can think of robbing God. But God says, you robbed me by just not bringing it. In other words, God's saying, all that you have is mine to begin with. Do you recognize that God's not interested in your money? But what we do with these things begins to reveal where our heart is at. Are we trusting the Lord with it? Are we looking at these things as though they are the Lord's and we just want to honor him in it? We want to give back to the Lord because it reveals that we're trusting in you, God, more than we're trusting in our money, our finances. It says, you've, you've robbed me by not bringing these things because it's mine to begin with. And they were called to bring a tithe, the tenth of it. Now in the New Testament, we're not, We're not under the law. We're not called to bring a tithe, but we're called to be cheerful givers. The Lord desires us to be generous, to be givers indeed, but to do so not out of legalness or duty, but out of love for the Lord. Again, to understand that principle, God, I recognize that what I have is from you. And I want to honor you. I want to show that, Lord, I'm I'm giving back because I, I trust you more with these things than... I'm putting my trust in those things for myself. Lord, I want to look to you. So they're called to bring the tithes. And and it's the only place that God's really commanded people to test him in. See what I'll do. See what I'll do. Because I believe God wants to bless you as you put your trust in him, as you give, as you're faithful with the things that God has given to you. Chapter 4. Verse 4 to 6, we'll finish up the book here. It says this, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in horror for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come, uh, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, it's interesting, the last few words that we see in the Old Testament are interesting. First of all, we see, remember the law of Moses. Now, there'll be 400 years, like I said, of silence where they're not going to hear from the Lord. But they had more than enough of God's voice and heart right before them through the law of Moses that they need to remember. It can be like that at times where we might be wondering, living and thinking, God, where are you at? Well, it's been a long time since I've heard from you. Why do you seem silent yet? All we need to do is open up God's word. Remember the word of God because this is the way that God's going to speak to you. It's the way that God wants to reveal his heart to you. Open up his word and you'll begin to hear from the Lord today. And it's interesting that Malachi not only ends with remember the law of Moses, but lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. That's the last word of the Old Testament, curse. Most prophets ended with writing in hope. Talking about God's future plans of restoration and, and reconciliation and just a great uplifting word. But Malachi ends with a curse. That's where the law of Moses leaves people. Yet it sets the stage now for the redemptive work of Jesus Christ that we begin to see unfolding in the New Testament. It's why Jesus needs to come because he's the cure for the curse. That's who Jesus is. He's the scarlet thread that's woven all through scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. That's why I've been excited just to go through this Bible from 30,000 feet just to see how in each and every book we're just pointing to, looking ahead to the work of Jesus. God's got this all laid out for us to see that Jesus is the cure for the curse because Genesis is hit right away with the curse and we see the fallout of sin to the Old Testament. But where God wants to redeem a people and bring the Messiah through who would be the deliverer for the entire world. And that's what we get to look to now 
in the New Testament. Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. The New Testament ends with the emphasis on grace. The Old Testament ends with curse. New Testament ends with grace. Revelation twenty two twenty one. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So, Old Testament complete. Woo. Next week, start in the Gospels. And man, that's great. We're going to see a lot of fun stuff and maybe a little bit more exciting hanging out, camping out, doing an overview through the New Testament. But lots of good stuff for us. So let's pray and uh, we'll wrap up here. Lord, we thank you for our time here. Thank you for bringing us through the Old Testament here. And again, just being reminded... Lord, that is all pointing to you. It's all looking ahead to the work you're going to accomplish. Lord, you're that scarlet thread that weaves through each and every page, each and every book of the Bible. Because you're the one that became a curse for us to redeem us, Lord. To bring us life in you and we're grateful. We're thankful for that, Lord. So may we live in and walk in that grace that love of God that you have for us. Let us continue to be that light in the world. And Lord, may we be freshly filled with your spirit. The oil being poured in that anoints us, that enables us to live these lives for you as a witness in this world. So use us now, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.